Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go away, bald head! Go away, bald head! When he turned around and saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled forty-two of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel and then returned to Samaria. That little episode from the second book of Kings has got to be one of the most scandalous as far as modern readers are concerned. The very idea that a prophet might use his prophetic influence to get God to basically murder a bunch of kids is so unthinkable that we might be tempted to just skip it. I know that it is one story that many would probably just rather wasn't in the Bible at all. But, as so-called miracle stories go, there really isn't all that much about this story that is unbelievable. Is it possible, for example, that not everyone in Israel loved all the prophets all the time? Of course it is. And so it is certainly believable that a bunch of kids might have mocked a prophet like Elisha and made fun of him because he was bald. And if Elisha was teased like that by some very annoying kids, well, he would hardly be the first adult in the history of the world to be annoyed enough to turn around and shout out a curse towards those kids. I mean, sure, it's not necessarily the most charitable thing to do, but everybody has a bad day from time to time. And if Elisha did curse some kids, well, of course he would have cursed them in the name of his God, Yahweh. I mean, sure, it would be a violation of that take-the-name-of-Yahweh-in-vain commandment, but... Everybody slips up from time to time. The other thing that is perfectly believable in the story is that there were some children who were killed by wild animals. This is, after all, a story that has been part of the human experience ever since human beings have crossed paths with animal habitat. It still happens sometimes to this very day. It is a horrible tragedy, of course, whenever such a thing happens. And, as with any tragedy, it is the kind of event that makes people ask the question, why? And, in my experience, when people are struggling with events like that, they will often latch on to just about any cause or explanation for why the tragedy occurred. Why do they do that? Because it seems better than the alternative. The alternative being, of course, giving in, and accepting the truth that we live in a universe in which bears might at any moment just maul small children to death for no particular reason. 
sometimes having a bad reason feels better than having no reason at all. So, I certainly feel for these poor townspeople who saw their children suffer from a bear attack. I understand why they grasped for an explanation and a purpose behind it. But, as I think of how they might have put together that story and the cause and effect involved, I'm not entirely sure that we need to accept the explanation that they came up with. There could be another way to understand this story. This is Retelling the Bible. Episode 6.1 Baldilocks and the Two Bears It all started when two of the young boys in the town failed to come home at the end of the day. Their parents didn't think too much of it at first. It was the kind of small town where everybody trusted their neighbors, and most people were related in some way or another. So they just figured that the boys had probably gone to stay with a cousin or an aunt. They only really started to worry when the boys didn't show up the next day. The parents went out and asked all of the neighbors and relatives if they'd seen the boys, and none of them had. That's when they began to search around the town in earnest. It was late in the afternoon when they finally came upon the remains. There seemed to be little doubt that this was what had happened to the little boys. The bodies were quite unrecognizable, but their mother recognized the clothes that they had been wearing, clothes that she had woven with such care. She collapsed on the ground, weeping, while her husband tried to do what he could to give her a little bit of comfort. Of course, it did not take long for the rest of the town to come out and see the gruesome sight. It seemed evident that the deaths had been caused by some sort of wild animal attack. And a couple of the men, who had done some hunting, insisted that the tracks that surrounded the bodies had been made by at least two bears. As you can imagine, the ensuing days were taken up with the task of managing the grief, not only of one family, but indeed of the entire town. The mangled remains were buried with prayers. 
the neighbors and the relatives did everything they could to come alongside the grieving parents with comfort and support. But, as often happens in this kind of situation, there was one thing above all that the people felt they needed in order to deal with their grief. It was a question that the mother had been asking over and over again, and that many others had taken up as well. The question was why? Why had this happened to her boys? There had to be some reason, didn't there? It is a very easy kind of question to ask in circumstances like that. But it can honestly be a very perilous question to answer. At least, if you try and answer it in simplistic ways. But, as the town folks spoke among themselves in the following weeks, they did start to come to a consensus concerning the answer to that question, why? It all had to do with some events that had taken place in the week prior to the tragedy. The town had been having some issues with its water supply. There was a spring of water just on the outskirts that they had used as long as anyone could remember. But recently they had noticed that there was a great deal of illness in the town, and it seemed to be coming from the spring. The people who drank the water, even if they mixed it with wine, would often fall sick with diarrhea and other ailments. The livestock who drank from the spring seemed to be particularly susceptible, and there had been a number of miscarriages and deaths of the young among them. They knew that something was not right, especially as the water had a strange smell and taste to it. But they didn't know what to do. But then a traveling prophet came passing through the town. His name, he said, was Elisha, the son of Shaphat. No one had really heard of him at that point, though that would change as a result of these events. At the time, the only thing that had impressed the people was that he claimed to have been a disciple of the great Elijah, the Tishbite. Now him, people had heard of. Elisha wore a coat made out of camel hair with a leather belt, just as the Tishpite was said to have worn. He also wore a mantle over top, which he said had been given to him by his master. In fact, he told a rather amazing story about how it had been bestowed upon him, a story that kept everyone spellbound as they listened. 
By far the most remarkable trait of the man, however, was his bald pate. Though he was still relatively a young man, he scarcely had a hair upon his whole head. They had not often seen such a thing before, and many of them found it to be quite odd. Indeed, at least behind the man's back, it quickly became the subject of much light-hearted mockery in the town. But, since Elisha claimed to be a seer and prophet, it didn't take long for someone to raise the issue of the problem they'd been having with the water supply. The sons of the prophets had been getting a reputation among the people of Israel for being able to fix various local problems and issues. So someone asked Elisha if anything could be done about the spring. And oh, did the prophet get very serious at that point. He asked to be taken out to the spring, and he frowned and stared at it for a while. Then he ordered that the head of the spring should be cleared, as it was covered over with brush and scrub. Once the scrub had been cut away, they discovered the carcass of a young goat that had gone missing in the town some months before. Elisha ordered some of the men to take it away and bury it at some distance. Then he ordered that all of the people of the town should come out to observe what he did. He also demanded that the local potter should bring him a new-made bowl of fine quality and that it should be filled with salt. Once everyone had assembled, the men, the women, and the children, the young and the old, he raised the bowl high above his head, and he called out, Thus says Yahweh, I have made this water wholesome. From now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. And he cast the salt into the spring. The people were very impressed by the whole spectacle, but some were still understandably nervous about the water and drinking it. The prophet assured them, however, that if they only waited for a few days, they would indeed find the water fresh and pure again. That was actually the beginning of the problems. It seemed that the prophet wanted payment for his services immediately. But there were some in the town, especially those who had the power to contribute towards such a payment, who really wanted to wait and see the results that they had been promised. But Elisha insisted that he couldn't be patient. He had to go on up to the high place at Bethel, for he had some business there. So the people of the town 
did give him what he requested, though there were some who grumbled about it and mocked the bald prophet behind his back for his bald-faced seeking of prophets. But they paid him, mostly because too many of them were afraid of what an angry prophet might do to curse them if they did not comply. They might just end up with a worse problem than a bad water source. As Elisha put together his belongings the next morning to set out for Bethel, he thought about how things had gone. This was really his first prophetic experience out from under his master's control. He thought that overall, he had done pretty well. He had helped the people of the town to solve a very real problem and given them an enduring image with the bowl of salt that they could hold on to whenever they worried about their water supply. The bowl, which he had slipped into his bag in the midst of all the excitement, was very well made and would provide him with an excellent keepsake. But there was one thing that still troubled him. He had spent years with Elijah and seen all of the ways in which people had treated him with such deference and respect. And he lived with his continual sense that he would never quite measure up to what Elijah had been. He had asked for a double portion of Elijah's spirit, but that was really just a way of compensating. He felt as if, even with that, he was still no Elijah. So, ever since he had arrived in this town, he had been bothered by a niggling sense that these people didn't respect him, that they were perhaps even laughing at him behind his back. Oh, he'd seen the people whispering to each other and laughing, and then they would often rub their heads and smile as they looked back at him. It was about the hair, wasn't it? Ever since it started falling out while he was still young, Elisha had been very conscious about it. And he was beginning to feel that, because of it, he would just never be able to fill the big mantle that had been left for him. The last straw, of course, had been the way they had tried to negotiate over his price. He felt as if he had done them a real service and that he deserved his pay. But they didn't seem to agree. He sighed deeply as he shoved the last of his things into his sack and then slung it over his shoulder. He called out his thanks and a goodbye to the family that had hosted him and set out towards Bethel. 
He was just coming to the outskirts of the town, and feeling much lighter at heart at the prospect of leaving the place behind him, when he noticed an odd sound coming from the bushes by the side of the road. There was whispering and shushing and quite a few suppressed giggles. It seemed that it was a pack of children. Almost all of the children of the town were there. They had been there, behind the scenes, though mostly unnoticed, throughout all of the events of the recent days. They had watched with awe the seemingly magical actions of the prophet at the spring, but they had also listened intently while their parents talked about Elisha, debated his payment, and expressed their doubts concerning the water. They had especially listened as their parents talked and laughed about the prophet's strange appearance. Oh, yes, they had learned a number of funny ways to speak about people like him, using words like baldy, chrome dome, cue ball, follically challenged, and baldy locks. The elder of the town who had invented the last one seemed to be particularly tickled by it. So, for these kids, Elisha's visit to their town was the biggest thing that had happened there in their entire lives. They were honestly pretty sad to see him leaving. So, they had spontaneously come together and decided to organize him a send-off. And I honestly think that when they came bursting out of the undergrowth and started shouting, Go up, Baldy! Go up! They really didn't mean anything by it. They simply spoke of the man as they had heard their parents speaking of him. But Elisha was not really in the best frame of mind to take a little bit of good-natured ribbing. I'm not sure we can blame him for turning around and shouting back at the kids, Yahweh, damn you! Damn you crazy kids! The kids, honestly, were kind of thrilled by it. They yelled and they screamed and laughed as they ran home to tell their parents what they had done. Everybody really just thought it was a bit of fun. Now, a week later, it seemed that nobody was laughing. Two of the town's children were dead following a bear attack. And with so many people desperately searching for an answer to the question, why? It really didn't take very long for their minds to fall on the story 
of the prophet's curse. The one thing had happened after the other, and it seemed reasonable to say that one thing had been the cause, the purpose, and the meaning of the other. This is not to say that this was a particularly good answer to the question why. It seemed to suggest some rather frightful things about the prophet Elisha and about his God. But, faced with the other possibility that such a terrible tragedy had happened for no reason at all, believing it just seemed to be the better choice. At least, if this was the reason, it would offer them the possibility of escaping such disasters in the future. All they had to do going forward was make sure not to insult any follically challenged prophets. And so the story was accepted by all the townsfolk. It was clear to them that the prophet's curse had summoned the deadly bears. Once the people of the town had come to the consensus that this was what had happened, it did not take very long at all for the story to spread far and wide. Indeed, everyone who heard it felt as if it was their duty to share it with as many people as they could, to warn them of the consequences of disrespecting a prophet. And, well, you know how it goes when that kind of story spreads. Certain aspects may have a tendency to be exaggerated. The number of children killed in the attack, well, that might have gotten bigger in the telling. Meanwhile, the lag of time between the curse and the attack, that might have been minimized in the interests of making the story more exciting and the moral clearer. But the basic story as they had understood it was established. And it got around. When the prophet Elisha eventually heard the story, which of course he did, he didn't remember it all going down quite like that. He certainly knew that he had never intended anything truly harmful with his little curse. But he didn't really dispute the story, not in public anyways, because he had noticed, as had a number of the other sons of the prophets, that he had been getting more respect from the people lately. He really didn't think that that could be a bad thing. Many years ago, I knew a couple that, years before I ever met them, lost a child. It was a tragic story, but one that is too common in this world. They were deeply wounded by their loss, of course, 
but when I met them there was one vestige of their grief that plagued them in particular. In their initial process of mourning they had asked the question that people so often do at such times. They wanted to know why their beautiful girl had been taken away from them. I don't think there's anything wrong with asking that question at such times, but I also don't think that we should expect to get an easy answer to that question. But, you see, in the case of this particular couple, they were given an answer. An authority figure, their minister, gave them an answer in the course of his funeral sermon for their child. She was a good child, he intoned. Indeed, she was far too good for this world. And so God took her. And many decades later, they could quote that part of the sermon to me word for word when they asked me to explain what kind of monster God would want to take their child away from them. And as much as I tried to persuade them that the answer to their question that they'd been given was wrong, they had lived with it for far too long at that point, and I could not help them to see it in any other way. So, I certainly understand how perilous it is to try and answer the question why in the aftermath of a tragedy. I know the damage that a wrong answer can do. And I'm fairly convinced that what we have in the story of Baldy Locks and the Two Bears is a bad answer given to that natural question of why. I realize that there are some who might disagree with me, and that's fine. It is true that the story, as it is told, strongly implies, even if it doesn't say it in so many words, that because the bear ha attack happened after the curse, that the one was the cause of the other. For one thing, I am reminded that it is a logical fallacy to think that correlation always implies causation. In this story, the only one who would know for sure whether the one caused the other would be an omniscient narrator. And I don't believe that this is a story told by an omniscient narrator. And yes, I do understand that there are people who look at the Bible text and see an omniscient narrator. That is because they see the text of the Bible itself as being written by God. I take a different approach. I do see the Bible as being written through an inspired process, but it is also clear to me that it was written by people who were just doing their best to tell their story of how they had experienced God. It doesn't 
necessarily mean that they always got things like cause and effect right. But it does mean that overall, and through the whole process, they came to have particular insights and understandings of God that happened to continue to be very helpful. But, hey, that's me. You need to work through these things for yourself. That is it for this episode of Retelling the Bible. Please subscribe so you can get the next episode in a couple of weeks. A five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or some other podcasting platform is a great way to help other people find this podcast. The theme music for the podcast is Ada, and the mood music for this episode is Grand Dark Waltz, Moderato and Allegro. The music is by Kevin McLeod, licensed under the Creative Commons and can be found at incompetech.com. You can contact me on Twitter at Retelling Bible, on the Facebook page Retelling the Bible. Show notes for this episode have been posted at retellingthebible.wordpress.com. This is Retelling the Bible, and I have been your storyteller, W. Scott McCandless.